0: Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. How many of you have ever walked into a spider web? It's crazy, isn't it? Imagine what it looks like to somebody else. Because you can see the spider web, can't you? Like, you see that it's there. I don't know about you guys. I have, I have some fears, and some of my fears are snakes and spiders. In Germany, they did not understand that at all. By the way, Germany was amazing. Our team was amazing. Can we just give them a big hand? <laughs> so when we were there in Germany, and, and um, they, were, they had spiders everywhere, and they, they didn't freak out at all. Like, some of them were the size of small cats. And they would just pick them up and walk them other places. And I was like, y'all are crazy. And they were like, what is the big deal? And I was like, they'll kill you. And they're like, no, you, no, they won't. Found that in Germany, there's virtually no spiders that are poisonous. And they were like, what about Texas? I said, they will straight kill you. <laughs> and the smaller they are, the more terrifying that they become. And so when you walk into a spider web in Texas, to you, you are fighting for your life as you are just going after this thing. But to other people, you look crazy like you were just walking along, and then freaked out, because all of a sudden there was something there that had the power to kill you. Things that can kill us get our attention. I was Googling this uh, uh, weekend on things, uh, uh, just got different things and what kills them. For example, um, car batteries. Uh, Vibration kills it. Which would be helpful if it wasn't in a car at that point. Uh, Your iPhone, heat. Uh, Your energy, gluten, dairy, corn, soy, and eggs. No wonder I have no energy at all. Uh, By the way, if you want to kill the smell of dog pee, put vinegar on it. That's not really applicable to the message, but I thought it was a helpful tip if you're looking to get rid of that in your life. Uh, Metabolism, refined grains, (laughs) conventional produce, juice, soda, fried food, and farmed beef. That'll kill your metabolism. What will kill your marriage? Sometimes other family members. (laughs) Communication problems, stress, technology, unforgiveness, not understanding boundaries or your past. But let me ask this, what kills your walk with God? What does that? There's a lot of people in our world, like in our life right now today, we need a breakthrough in the areas of pride like J.D. talked about last week. We need a breakthrough in the area of self-control and lust or craving approval or shame or guilt or worry or fear, and we're going to talk about all those in this series. So today let's jump into this because we've got a lot of ground to cover um, and I don't want to miss any of this. So let's look at something that sometimes is killing us. If you've got your handout you can take notes or you can get your app out and take notes there. But it is the first, we're going to start with a lack of self-control. Anybody ever lose your control? Anybody ever just snap and lose it at any area of your life? I texted my family this week. I was looking for examples. And I said, can you guys send me any examples where dad lost control? And then my text messages blew up. <laughs> I was like, clearly this is a problem for me. So I'll, I'll tell you a, f- a few. I'm not going to go into detail. But I can't stand it. I will lose control when uh, uh, when Chipotle leaves out the the salad dressing out of their salads. Like some of you have heard that story, I'm not getting into it, but it will cause me to lose my mind. When I go to, I will, I will stay with the cell phone that I have longer than absolutely necessary because I can't stand to go replace a cell phone. You have to fill out more, I could buy a house faster than I can buy a cell phone. Like it's so much paperwork and I will lose it in the, prob, in the process. Um, I do not understand drive throughs with my family. Like when you're getting fast food and you pull up, in my mind, fast food means that you have fast on both sides of the equation. The people in the car must be fast. The people in the place must be fast. Anybody breaks this down, it is no longer fast food. And so when we go to a place like, I don't know, McDonald's, that hasn't changed its menu in 187 years. <laughs> and I pull up and they're like, hey, how can I help you? And I have an answer, I'm ready to go. And I look at my family and they're like, um, <laughs> give, give me this. And I go, okay, well, we need this. Oh, no, 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 I don't want that anymore. Can you we, can we change it to this? And I'm like, uh-uh. I will get out of the car and just put it in park and just leave. <laughs> like, I will lose my mind crystal was reminding me of a trip we took when we were in ohio and we were uh heading back down to texas and we got in her van and we started driving uh, we had a quarter of a tank of gas and i thought like, we probably need to pull over here in a little bit and get some gas and um just about a mile later we were on the side of the road completely empty and i was like what happened like did something puncture the gas tank and it just came out and then crystal said that's weird it's been on a quarter of a tank for like the past two weeks. <laughs> did, the, did you think the magical Exxon Fairy was coming by and just filling it up? But not too much, because we don't want to overbless you. Just a quarter of a tank every day. And we're just gonna, it's like manna from heaven just coming in to your gas tank. But I gotta get out and walk to a gas station and then purchase a gas can oh man apparently I just need counseling that's all this is about today I don't know if anybody else has ever lost control but if you have I think you can relate to this we've lost control anybody ever lost control driving anybody ever lost control with your words this morning okay there we go sorry anybody ever lost control with your kids spouse what about your desires and your appetites your passions and you just overindulged in something that you shouldn't let me ask you how does that go for you probably not real well have you ever been in a place where you feel like you got trapped in a mistake like you've done something over and over again and now it's on repeat and it's the only way you can see you and you think it's the only way anybody else can see you also and we have a phrase in, uh, in, in American culture that says practice makes perfect. It was interesting in Germany, um, one of the guys that was working with us, uh, he he's a professional baseball player, uh, he played in the U.S., he's from Germany, he's from Heidenheim, and he was there with our, he's part of the church that we partner with in Germany, and he said actually practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. He said you can practice the wrong thing, and if you do it often enough, it doesn't become perfect in your life, it simply becomes permanent in your life. And that's what happens when we don't have self control. We practice something that becomes permanent and ingrained in us and ultimately causes destruction. I want to look at Galatians chapter five. I'm not going to read this part of the beginning, but if you started reading on your own at verse 16, you're going to find that the, 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 the writer here, Paul, is going to tr- uh, talk to the church of Galatians. He's going to say, hey, there is a difference between the activity of the spirit in your life and the activity of the flesh in your life. And he said the works of the flesh are obvious. There's sexual immorality, um, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, all these kind of things. He says, If you're you're guided by the flesh, in other words, you don't have spiritual self control, then the output of your life is going to look like that. But then he says in verse 22 he's going to give you the idea of what your life produces if you have spiritual, if you have the Holy Spirit active and living and thriving in your life. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, and I want to just say this right here the fruit of the Spirit means I didn't produce it. The fruit of the Spirit means you didn't produce it. The fruit of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit of God in you produced it. So it is important that we understand that this implies, there is implicit in the text that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and then the fruit or the output or the byproduct of the Spirit living you this is this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what, Church? self-control the law is not against such things now those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires and we live by the what church spirit. i know i hadn't preached for the last two weeks but y'all have to get louder than that okay live by the what spirit. we live thank you we live by the spirit so let us keep in step with the spirit Now, when we talk about self-control, I think there's two definitions that we need to make sure we unpack because there's a cultural definition of self-control and then there's a spiritual definition of self-control. And today, we're talking about the spiritual one. But let me define them for you. See, cultural self-control is this, taking control of my life to produce what I want through my power. That's the proverbial pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you make it through, grind it out, and you do it the way you can do it by your power and strength. And that is not a good path spiritual self-control means this that I surrender my life to Jesus to produce what he wants through his spirit's power and that is good and that's what we're talking about today in the Greek the word for control here means power dominion it is the idea that an emperor or or a ruler comes into a place and takes dominion over a people or an area which means that a lack of self-control means that something else has moved into your life to have dominion and power over you. So you either living in fruit or you are living in the famine because that is the opposite of producing. You either produce fruit or you live in famine. To produce fruit means what we saw from Paul: is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there is a famine that you can also live in if you are not allowing the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not active in your life, if you are resisting the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that we can resist the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Then we will experience the famine of these things. In other words, what does it look like in your marriage, in your workplace, in your home, in your family? What does it look like in your finances? What does it look like in your desires when you have the opposite of love? joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does the lack of self-control look like in your marriage? What does the lack of self-control look like in your financial life? What does the lack of self-control look like with your words? It's a famine that causes not only for you to be destroyed by it, but it will wreak havoc in the world around you. So I want us to look at why this is so difficult. I'll start with this. The first reason it's so difficult is instant gratification. See, we think faster, like well, here, the reality is faster results can wreck our self-control. They can wreck our self-control. I remember when, when Crystal and I first came to Crossroads, You know, we were up in Ohio, we were at a very large church up there, everything was going well, we loved where God had us, and then a church in Rowlett, Texas, that at the time had about 60 people in it, called and said, uh, hey, would you like to come be the pastor of our church? And we said, oh, uh, no thank you. And, and then they found out that we were coming to Texas um, to visit our family on vacation, and they said, hey, would you mind coming and talking to us when you're here on vacation? You know how you like to do a job interview when you're on vacation? Um, And I was like, "Uh, uh, uh, sure. So they said, will you come have dinner with us? Yeah, we'd love nothing more than to spend some of our vacation, having dinner with a bunch of weirdo strangers that we've never met in Raleigh, Texas. It would have been much easier, much more convenient for us to say no again. And I just imagine what would my life look like today if I had caved to instant gratification in that moment. I'm not saying that God wouldn't have moved and we wouldn't be where we are today. I'm saying I would have missed out on it. I'm not saying that God couldn't use somebody else. He absolutely could. But I, I, if I could just be a little bit uh, greedy for a minute, I'm, I, I'm really glad that I got to experience it. I'm glad that we didn't resist that. See, we live in a culture of fast, where when we want a spouse, we don't develop relationships. We swipe left or swipe right. Right? We live in a culture of fast where diet doesn't mean that consistent, persistent diet and exercise, it means can I find a pill, a shake, a drink, or a leaf that's grown somewhere in South America that I can chew on and wake up tomorrow. You know like that Spider-Man transformation when you wake, you go to bed like the nerdy, geeky kid and you wake up with abs? Like we want that. We want to be known, but instead of taking the time to actually reveal ourselves to somebody else, we settle for going on social media and thinking that means that we're known we want money and we want the things that come with money but instead of earning it and taking the time and saving we go into debt and things go bad see what if resisting opportunities to grow our self-control lead to opportunities for sin instant gratification often leads to self-medication Instead of trusting in God, instead of waiting on God, we self-medicate, and it multiplies in our life. In the 1980s and 90s in Colombia, there was a guy named Pablo Escobar. I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with him. He was a Colombian drug lord. He had properties all over the world, and there in Colombia, he owned an area in the jungle, and he decided to give a gift to his children that he would make a zoo for them in the jungles of Colombia. And so they brought in animals from all over the world, and they had this private zoo just for his kids. After he was captured and eventually he died, um, they said, well, we got to go in there. we got to get those animals back to their natural habitat. So they flew those animals back out to places all over the world with the exception of one animal. And they thought, well, it's, there's only a few of them here. It's not that big of a deal. We'll just let them run free in Colombia. It can't possibly do any damage. They were hippos. And they didn't realize how damaging the hippos could be. And they also didn't realize there were no natural predators for hippos in Colombia. So they multiplied like crazy. And then there began to be stories of whole crops being consumed, people being killed. These things multiplied and multiplied and multiplied because no one thought it was going to be dangerous. And so they were left unchecked. And the same is true for the sin in our life. When left unchecked, it grows exponentially. This is why fast sometimes is bad for us, because we will take on the instant over the significant. For example, we want intimacy, but we settle for pornography. We want fun, we settle for alcoholism and depravity. We want generosity coming out of our life, but we settle for compulsive shopping and debilitating debt. We want to be on mission, but we'll settle for being an influencer. We want to worship, but instead of becoming a follower of Christ, we become a fan. And I just want to offer a question in 2023 that is countercultural. What if the key to this is slowing down? In Proverbs 25, 28 In the NIV it says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. That without the proper boundaries, without the proper walls, there is no self-control and it allows for sin and Satan to enter into our life and do damage and grow. A second reason this is so difficult is because of, I know this sounds crazy, but independence. Like what if self-control determines the leadership of your life? Uh, When my kids were young I used to do this thing usually not around crystal because she'd freak out But when your kids are like little i'm talking toddler age and they've just begun to be able to stand up I used to do this. I found a picture of some guy doing it on the internet First of all, how cool is that? All the dads in here like straight up trying that when I get home And all the moms are like I can't believe like I get it But here's the deal whether it was that for you or how many of you threw your kids way high into the air? The key to all that was that your children had given up control to your leadership. Self-control is a choice of leadership. You either surrender surrendering your life to the leadership of Jesus or you are surrendering your life to the leadership of something or someone else. Now the world will tell us that independence is a value. And they want to ask you to give control to something or to someone that you trust more than you trust Jesus, and it leads you to often putting your trust in yourself or into self-medication. And in the process, we miss out on God's plan for our lives. See, I think we, we struggle a lot when it comes to the idea of self-control, and many of us are failing in that, re- in that regard. And that at the same time, people who are failing in the area of self-control still want to exist in a place of, they want to be in the leadership of God and they want God to give them a leadership in a ministry. But let me ask you this, if you can't demonstrate the ability to lead yourself, why would God line anybody else up behind you? Like maybe your ministry isn't where it should be, not because God is unwilling to bless it, but because you're unwilling to obey. self-control is a choice of who's leading. How do we make the move then? From self-sufficient to God-sufficient. See, it's gonna be more difficult than we think. It's gonna take longer than we think, but this is about saying yes to God's leadership. So let me ask you a, a question that might sound counterintuitive. What if there's greater freedom from being dependent than being independent? See, we think independence leads to freedom, but what if there's actually greater freedom from being dependent? For example, how many of you have ever had the electricity God at your house? How many of you guys went through like Snowmageddon here? Like, yeah, and like, a bun, like all the power went out. And then what did we do in North Texas? Freaked out. Everybody freaked out. Why? Because we depend on that electricity. It gives us the power and the freedom to do things we could not do without it dependence on it leads to freedom with it and the same is true of god without god we are independent but we are also helpless with god we are helped through our dependence on him see i think part of the key to self-control is this, and I, and I, I, I just want try to try to say this as clearly as I can. I think th- there's little areas of self-control in our life today, small areas, that seem insignificant. And, and I think Satan loves to attack that point in our life. Satan loves to attack these small moments, whether it's becoming healthy, making good decisions financially or whatever, because it, he knows that if we take one small step in the right direction then we're more likely to take another step in the right direction, and then another step in the right direction, leaning into the leadership of God. And he also knows that if he can get us to take one small step in the wrong direction, does it become easier to take another step in the wrong direction? Absolutely it does. See, Satan wants to stop small steps of progress. And what self-control is, is an early warning sign that you are headed in a wrong direction, and that you are not operating under the leadership of God. And so you go, I don't want to ever end up in this place where I'm having an affair on my spouse. If I can learn to demonstrate self-control when it comes to what I look at on my phone here, I can more likely avoid ever getting here. You understand what I'm saying, church? See, self-control has an enormous ability to lead us either towards progress or pain depending on who we are following. On the other side of an exercise of self-control, we are learning to trust in God and to wait on God and to receive a blessing. It's causing dependency from us to God. And so every moment we take that small step, because here's what we wanna do, right? Every time we see a moment that needs a breakthrough in our life, what we wanna do is we wanna go from here To hear how fast. But what that does not create is the trust and the dependency of waiting on the Lord. See, if God can take you from this place to this place, we learn to trust and wait, and then trust and wait, and then trust and wait and then trust and wait. And at the end, what we've arrived at is in our mind the destination of not making a mistake or making a good decision. But ultimately, to God, the place that we have arrived at is a place of de- dependency on our Father. And that's what self control is all about. We see this demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ driven self control is motivated by love. Jesus showed self control on the cross. Did Jesus have the ability to come down from the cross? absolutely he did. He chose to stay. And you know what his motivation was? Love for you. What kept him on the cross was not an inability to come off of it. What kept him on the cross was his love for you. It was his understanding of what your life can do if you surrender it to him. It was his passion for your family and his passion for your marriage, his passion for what mission you would be on in your workplace and in your neighborhood. That's the motivation of love that kept him on the cross. See, what if for us self-control is a showcase for the glory of God? The demonstrating self-control and dependency and relying on and trusting in and waiting on God, what if that is a display case for the glory of God. What if you're a single person going, I desperately want to find a spouse, but I, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna trust in and wait in the Lord. I'm not gonna be somebody who tries to go around God's plan, around God's structure, around God's path for my life. I'm gonna trust in it. And in that moment, around all the other single people who are trying to do it the world's way, you will be the one displaying the glory of God. That's what happens. When we understand self-control, when you operate financially different than everybody else, it is a showcase for the glory of God. When you use your words in a way that is God-honoring and life-giving, not destructive, it is a showcase for the glory of God. When you learn to hold back your anger that is unrighteous and hurtful, it is a showcase for the glory of God. Self-control is a showcase for the glory of God, motivated by love for God and love for for the people that he loves so dearly. I want us to understand self control because I want us to get right now to a specific area that I think there is a breakthrough needed in our world. It is a passion that is out of control lust. Lust in the original Greek is actually a combination of two words, and here's what they mean it means over desire. It means a desire that is not only taken over, but you have more of that desire in you than you should. It's not just sexual. I have an over desire for Oreos, I have an over desire for queso. Some people have an over desire for security. Some people have an over-desire for other things, but it is a desire that is more than what it should be. You're longing for perfection that does not exist in this world. And it begins to consume you. It will lead you, that desire will lead you outside of God's boundaries. And I don't think there may be any area where Satan is more effective today than the desire when it comes to lust sexually. I've told this before in my... uh, in, in, in years past, but like for me, uh, sexual lust started for me where a lot of young men in my age started, uh, the Sears catalog. <laughs> if you're laughing, you're like, yeah, I think he's joking. If you're a guy my age, you're like, I hear you brother. Cause you get it. First time in my life, you get a Sears catalog and your parents go circle what you want for Christmas. And you bypass all of the like underwear ads in Sears catalog. And you're like, I've never never seen these things before. What is this? And then it moved from there to the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And then it gravitated for me beyond that to a friend of mine named Brandon, whose dad collected pornographic magazines. And all of a sudden, this stuff was embedded in my life. It took years for me to get to there. Today, do you know what you have to do? Google anything. And there it is. It's just going to appear in front of you because, and I don't want us to miss this, what we used to consider secret is now celebrated. We've looked at this scripture before, but I want us to go back to it. Matthew 5, 27, we looked at it in the top 10 series. He says, Jesus is t- teaching, he says, you have heard, it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, some people are going, like, Jason, this is impossible. That's an impossible standard. You're telling me that I can't lust at all. Like, Jason, I can't even go to Target without seeing magazines or somebody in an outfit that is just far too revealing, especially right now in Texas where it's 180 degrees. And I get it. I think it's very important that we understand what Jesus is and is not saying in this text. And the first one is he's not talking about simply the appreciation of beauty. God created the human body, and he said it was good the Hebrew word that was used was tov. Maybe you've heard it when somebody at a, in, in like Jewish celebration say mazel tov. And that word tov is actually packed full of some really powerful things. It means this. It means that whatever you're referring to is engaged in and completely fulfilling the, design, the divine purpose it was called for or created for, excuse me. In other words, when, 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 Jesus, when God looks at creation, he makes the world, and he makes the land and the sea, and he looks and calls it good, he's saying that that good thing is engaged in and completely fulfilling the divine purpose for which it was created. And when he makes the animals and the fish and the birds and he says that is good, it means that those things are engaged in completely fulfilling the divine purpose it was created for. And when he breathed life into man and he called it good, he said that man in that moment was engaged in completely fulfilling the divine purpose it was created for. And when he made woman, and even the guy went, whoa, man. Like literally, that guy started quoting poetry the moment he saw her. And God said that was good. Means that she was engaged in completely fulfilling the divine purpose that it was created for. And the word tav really has this implication towards sight that not only is it doing it, but you can see the beauty of it in creation. So to simply recognize that somebody is attractive is not in and of itself a sin. And he's also not talking about the momentary response. He's not talking about the neurological response, almost against your will. When somebody may be attractive to you walks by and you go, oh, they're very they're, they're very attractive. He's not talking about that. You cannot control your temptation. You can influ- influence it. Martin Luther. The old pastor, he he said it this way in his quote. He said, We should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teaching too tight here as if anyone who merely is tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head. I can keep it from making a nest in my hair and biting my nose off. So what he's saying is simply to notice somebody, that's a bird flying overhead, and you go, Oh, that was very attractive. That is not lust. To undress With your eyes and to imagine with your mind means that you've begun to let it nest in your hair and bite your nose off. And that is lust and it is sin and it is wrong. It is not the first glance that is the problem. It's what you do with it. See, on this issue, culture will collide with Jesus' teaching like it usually does. On one end of the spectrum, in our culture, what we have is a failed cultural experiment. Where we have put sexuality at the center of everything of life. It is the center of life, it is the center of identity, it is the center of everything. And it has resulted in a place where TikTok is dominated by videos that are sexualized, and you have websites like OnlyFans that are unbelievably popular over the last couple of years where people are literally undressing or having sexual experiences for the viewing pleasure of an audience. There are 2.1 million creators that are contributing content to OnlyFans today. 2.1 million people undressing and experiencing sexual activity for other people's pleasure. There are 210 million users of that website. Now, a lot of young people go into that and go, well, I can do this because I can make good money doing this and I can't get paid well doing anything else. It's a lie. Do you know what the average content provider for OnlyFans makes in a month? 180 dollars are there outliers making millions sure but it's a lie it's a lie that satan has brought into our life to get us to dive full on into this we live in a culture that says expressing sexual desire won't kill us but instead it convinces us that repressing it will the heart what's the what the heart wants after all And that sounds great to a lot of people until you're the one being betrayed, cheated on, or left behind. There are so many people in just this room that have been wounded and impacted by somebody else's lust. And you know what it feels like. On the other end of the spectrum spectrum in the Christian world, we get into this other extreme that is also not helpful. Where in the church, you're almost taught that like, sex is gross and a, it's just a necessary evil towards procreation. And what we've learned in our world, and very important in Scripture, is that a negative view of sex will lead particularly a younger generation to see God as some sort of cosmic spoilsport and not the loving creator God that he is that gifted us with the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy in marriage. See, God is so amazing to us that he gifted us. Like, do you understand what that means? That means that at some point there was nothing, and God and the angels got together, and God said, I'm going to make earth. And the angels were like, oh, what's earth? And he said, it's a big ball filled with land and sea, and they were like, oh, that's amazing. And he made it into existence, and then he said, okay, I'm going to make all these animals on it. And they're like, oh, what's an animal? And he said, they look like this. And he made like, like, like horses and zebras and cows and chickens and ducks and lions and tigers and bears. Thank you. Uh, and he did all these things. And then there was other people that like the angels got excited. They're like, hey, make one like this. Make one like this. And this one guy in the meeting, one of the angels went, let's make a horse with a neck like a ladder. We'll stretch it out. It'll be amazing. And they're like, shut up, Steve. You're not even supposed to be in here. And God was like, everybody get off Steve's back. We're going to make this. We'll call it a giraffe. It'll be amazing. And then he made all that. And then God said, I'm going to make man. And they were like, oh, what's a man? And then he made man. And then he made woman. And that blew their mind. And they thought creation was done. And God said, no, I've got one more gift I'm going to give them. And this is how creation is going to continue to play out. And they were like, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? God, show us what it is. And then this one guy over here, he goes, "Is it ice cream. And they're like, shut up, Steve. said, no. I don't know why it's named Steve. Sorry if your name's Steve. <laughs> he creates sexual intimacy there in the garden as a way to be close, to symbolize the closeness of our Father in heaven, and to create life in His design. And God says, go be fruitful and multiply. It's not just about procreation, it's recreation. It's tov. When done right, it is beautiful because it is fulfilling the divine purpose it was created for to love and to be loved well in return. See, there's a difference between love and lust. One of the most famous passages of scripture on love in the Bible, we hear it at almost every wedding, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, known as the love chapter. I don't have time to go through all of these, but I want you to look at the comparison of love to lust. He says, and and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, lust will rush. Lust will rush through dating and rush into bed and rush into marriage because lust wants it now and has no patience. The Bible says that love is faithful; It's in it for the long haul. But lust is short term. It's based on an emotional high or a physical desire. And then it goes away when your body changes or the romance dips and it moves on to the next thing. Love is selfless. It thinks of others first. But lust is selfish. Using other people to fulfill your own needs. Love is an act of the will. It is a choice. You don't fall into love. You choose to love. If you're in a marriage right now, you are in a marriage because you chose to love that person. God has chosen to love us. Love is based on a feeling, and those feelings do not last. And instead of going, because they do not last, I will not act on them, we go, well, I want to embrace just the feeling, and I'll do whatever I want anyway, even though I know it's going away. There's a difference between love and lust. See, lust, you can write this in your notes, lust is a desire regardless of the cost. I want to give you some equations real quick, just because I want you to to write these down, and it goes like this, and I've got to go fairly fast. You have desire plus no consent plus no commitment, and that equals abuse. It is not something that you want. The next equation, and where we go against culture, is we have desire plus consent plus no commitment, so we're both consenting, we both have the desire, but we have no intent on being committed to one another. And culture will argue that that is good as long as you have two consenting adults, but the Bible will argue that that will lead to emptiness. See, the equation is not simply desire plus content equals joy and freedom. It is desire plus content plus commitment. See, what we have to understand about lust is that when we engage in lust, you are not simply satisfying a desire. You're waking one up. When you engage in sexual activity, you are not just you are not going to satisfy it. You're going to wake it up. And you must be careful how and what you wake up in your life. You either wake up the desire and the appetite for love and commitment in a relationship, or you wake up an appetite for lust that can destroy you. In the Arctic areas, when they become overrun with wolves, they found a way to kill the wolves. They make popsicles with congealed blood. And in the middle of the blood popsicle is a razor. And they would set these things out in various places, and the way that it would work is this, is these dangerous wolves would go up and begin to lick the blood. It ignited an appetite in them because they long for that and they crave that blood. So all of a sudden, this appetite gets ignited. And yet, while they're licking this popsicle, their tongue becomes numb. So they don't recognize when they've gotten past the ice and they've begun licking the razor. And slice their own tongue over and over and over and consume no longer the congealed blood, but their own blood. And eventually, it leads to their death. Lust is the same thing in our life. We go into it because it awakens an appetite. And the more we engage it, the more numb we become. And as we become numb, it doesn't slice our tongue. It ultimately slices up our soul and leaves us empty. See, the right equation for this looks like this. It is desire plus consent plus commitment. And that's awesome. It's what God wants for us. Jesus is going to be hardcore about this teaching because he knows what it does to us and others and the mission. It says this in verse twenty-nine of that passage in Matthew. It says, "If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Um, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of the body than your whole body to be thrown in hell." Now we've said this before. He's not teaching self-mutilation because if he was teaching self-mutilation to get people to stop having sexually immoral things going in your life, he he is missing a very obvious body part to cut off he's stressing the effect and is he saying that that lust automatically sends you to hell well unrepentant sin will absolutely send you to hell but what he's actually saying, the word for hell here is the word in their culture that was the, the word Gehenna. And the word Gehenna was this place outside of the city where they had bodies and, and, and like carcasses of animals and the most horrible things you can imagine. They were burned up out there after they had died and it always had this smell and fire that was burning. And so there's a reality where he is telling us that unrepentant sin and a life not surrendered to God will send you to hell. But also, even if you are saved if you do not live obedient to Christ you might feel like your life is a garbage dump because you are lacking obedience to him that you're not experiencing intimacy you have crippling guilt and shame a dead marriage and a painful affair that you're experiencing what they experienced from Gehenna and that is hell on earth and starts with a look I've got some statistics I'm going to throw at you real quick 18 to 26-year-olds, 67% of young men and 49% of young women say pornography is acceptable. As a matter of fact, in that same age group, this is mind-blowing, more of them believe that recycling is more immoral than pornography. Like not recycling, rather. 90% of young men and 31% of young women use pornography. 56% 56% of marriages that end in divorce end in divorce with at least one of the spouses obsessed with it. That commitment is 45% lower in couples that view pornography. And don't, don't miss this, church. Pornography is the third most common form of human trafficking. 60 plus percent of women in, porno, in, in pornographic films have been or are currently being trafficked. There are 28,258 people watching pornography every single second. Pornography is rewiring our brains. It gives us a hit of dopamine that makes us excited to go back to it. It trains us not to see people with hopes and dreams and souls. They're objects for our pleasure. See, I don't want you to miss this. The primary problem with pornography is the not is not that it shows too much of a woman. The primary problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of a man. The primary problem of pornography is that it shows too little of both. You don't see people with families. You don't see people with hopes and dreams and desires. You don't see people with a soul. You don't see a lost person desperately needing Jesus. See, the primary problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, it shows far too little. Now, as I say this message, I don't want you to think that you have to do this and try to check a box to be good, to earn your salvation. You are saved by grace through faith. What I am talking about is this, is that when you become a believer, we should take our apprenticeship to Jesus seriously. And that means loving our neighbor, which means not even being willing to hurt them with a look because Jesus doesn't want just our external behaviors. He doesn't just want us to not get caught. He wants to heal us from the inside out. So I just have a question for you this morning. Are you ready for a breakthrough in this area of your life? There's some questions I want you to ask. Like, what if, what if I've already messed up? Jason, what if right now I'm smack dab in the middle of a messy divorce and this is the reason? Uh, What if right now I'm in the grips of sexual sin, or maybe maybe you're on the other side of this? What if you're the victim of somebody else's lust? Maybe right now you're dealing with abuse or rape or an affair. And I'm just telling me talk to those people who feel victimized today. Let us help. We have opportunities for you here. If you're a person wounded by these things, we have counselors. We have professional counselors we send people to. We have a counseling team um, here at Crossroads. We have Regen that you've heard testimonies from, and we can send you in there. We would love to help you get connected to things that can help and heal and restore because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is alive and well for you today. Come on. (laughs) Opposition... Precedes a breakthrough. Whether you're the sinner committing it or you're the victim having it done to you, I want us to understand that a breakthrough is a military concept. It means that you're trying to take strategic ground from the enemy. And the Bible, every significant move of God is preceded by opposition. Strategic ground is not going to be given up easily by our enemy, and yet I want you to know this, as you are looking for a breakthrough in this area of your life, is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There is power there. Have you ever wondered why the cross is so extreme? Why it's so horrific? Jesus is killed in such a horrific way. It's so that he can give you a breakthrough from things that are horrifically killing you and holding you captive. I love that the Bible doesn't clean up the stories of the people in it. It shows you real people with real struggles to prove to us that no one is beyond a breakthrough. Now I can tell you that even though God may give you a breakthrough, there may still be consequences you face in this life. Your marriage still might end. Your life may still be impacted, but the shame and guilt you do not have to live in forever. God can give you a breakthrough from that. You might have been and were born a slave to desire, but the great news of the gospel is that you can be born again and free. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes into you when you are born again. and gives you the power to say no to the things that had had you in chains before. And I just want to end with this. I believe, I was thinking a lot about this, and you know, as a pastor, I write a lot of things in my notes, and then there's just certain things that I, I'm not sure how to say them until I get into the moment. And just kinda trust the Holy Spirit with this. I, I wanna tell you that I believe that there is a sign that you can look for in your life of whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is active. I believe there's a sign in your life that you can look for that will show you the grace of God being active in your life. And that sign, one of those signs rather, is this, that when temptation comes, when self-control tries to control you, you fight back. You don't sit passively. When you look at sin and temptation in scripture, it talks about resistance, it talks about fleeing, it talks about activity that we take on. That you will begin to be a fighter, that you will take ground by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will pray against those things and you will find community that you are willing to be vulnerable with, and you'll get other people standing shoulder by shoulder with you that are fighting against this thing. See, Satan wants to say to you, you'll never be free. And yet, if you read all through the Gospels, do you know what you will never find when Jesus encounters a person of sexual sin? You will never find rejection. You will find a God who is willing to free and to liberate those captives. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, he looks and says, who do you? Who condemns you? And they say, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But then he says, get up. Fight. Go and sin no more. And he transforms the broken. There's a thing called kintsugi. It's Japanese art. Some of you may have seen it before. It's pottery that they either intentionally or they often find broken, and they put it together using gold. It's a beautiful piece of art, and they love it because they they believe this. They believe that there is an incredible power of beauty that comes from brokenness. Can you just, I I know we're going longer than even my normal. Last year I had to preach in two different languages. It was slow, okay? So I saved some extra stuff for you guys. But if you're going, man, I feel like I'm in that broken, shattered place. Can I just get you to do me a favor? Just look around you for a minute, and don't do the churchy thing. I mean, literally look around, because it's going to tell you something about every one of the lives around you. Is they're broken too? And if you see them as being whole today, they're whole not because they're better than you. They're whole because the unbelievable grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ in their life. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the one that brings beauty from ashes. Lean in to trust, let him give you a muscle for self-control, resist lust, resist it, fight and show the beauty of the glory of God to the world.